Hello and welcome to Law Among Peoples, a podcast by Interhentes, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. We are a student-run web-based journal dedicated to promoting constructive dialogue between and about the many sources of normativity that make up the international legal framework. Our current issue deals with the topic of international journalism. In the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's death, the world has become more attuned to the dangers faced by journalists around the world. Time Magazine's 2018 Person of the Year honored Mr. Khashoggi and all the journalists around the world who struggled to speak truth to power. Our team interviewed three journalists, Stephanie Nolan, Zalalem Kibret, and Haroon Siddiqui, and we discussed issues surrounding the fear of reprisal that journalists face, the barriers to good international journalism, and what is not receiving enough attention. Joining me are my colleagues from Interhentes, Shake, and Eleanor. Eleanor, let's start with you. You interviewed Stephanie Nolan, yes? Yes. Stephanie is the Latin American correspondent for the Globe and Mail, and what was so interesting about speaking with her is that she's experienced with journalism all over the world. She's opened bureaus for the Globe in Johannesburg, New Delhi, and Rio de Janeiro, and her conversation ranged from the safety of reporting backed by an institution as big as the Globe to the lack of meaningful reporting on climate change. I'm excited to hear the conversation you two had. And Shake, you interviewed Zalalem Kibrit, yeah? Yes, I interviewed Zalalem, who is an O'Brien Fellow-in-Residence at the Center for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism at McGill's Faculty of Law. He is a scholar, lawyer, and law professor by way of background, and has earned several awards for his work in protecting journalists and freedom of international press. I had an honest conversation with him about his personal journey being a grassroots journalist and blogger in Ethiopia. That'll be interesting to hear. And I interviewed Haroon Siddiqui. Haroon was a former editorialist with the Toronto Star, and he currently lectures from time to time at Ryerson University's School of Journalism. He has written extensively on issues related to foreign policy and international journalism. I asked Haroon how he got involved in journalism, and he said the following. I entered journalism by default because um, I was really uh, studying atomic physics and then pre-med and pre-engineering and having failed at everything, I came into journalism. And I came to Canada in 67. I was already working in India as a journalist. And then I worked 10 years in Brandon Manitoba for a newspaper before coming to the Toronto Star. Let's see how our other guests got involved in the field of journalism and what their experience has been. We'll hear from Stephanie first. So not long after I got to the Globe, I started doing, I was a Toronto-based international affairs reporter and September 11th happened and I went to Afghanistan and spent a long time there and then I went to Iraq and spent a long time there during the invasion. Great. Now that we've heard from Stephanie, let's hear Zalalem's story. It's a long story, but uh, to make a long story short, um, it was, uh, I started in 2005. Uh, so there was this very contested election in Ethiopia. So there, there was this very contested election in Ethiopia and in the aftermath of the election, the Ethiopian government locked about 20-something journalists and about 70 journalists exiled because of the clampdown against the media and political dissidents. There are a lot of stories. I start my own, my own personal blog. Uh, then uh, I try to collaborate with other uh, co-bloggers in Ethiopia. And we, in 2012, we established the Zonine Blogging Collective, uh, an award-winning uh, collective that blogs in numerous topics for about two years. We blog on, we comment on politics and many issues. And finally, we end up in jail in 2014. I wow. mean, like uh, our predecessors in 2005, there was a series of jailing and exiling of journalists since that time. 
What an amazing journey. When I had asked Salalam how he got out of jail, he explained that he was released abruptly with others based on President Obama visiting Ethiopia. It was an unexpected outcome. He had described his release as a symbolic gift to President Obama. We are grateful to Zalalem for sharing his personal experience, which does show how impactful the fear of reprisal is on many journalists' lives, and sometimes completely out of their control. I think that also shows the power of recognition, and how international awareness of political conflicts can influence how journalists are treated. Stephanie had quite a bit to say about this as well. I was going to Africa and mm-hmm. doing a lot reporting, particularly on different um, conflicts, civil conflicts in, in Africa. I went to Somalia a couple times, to Liberia, Sierra Leone, northern Uganda a few times. So conflicts that I felt really weren't getting, you know, I had the experience of being in Baghdad or in Kabul with, you know, 600 other foreign reporters kind of trying to cram into a room for a UN press conference or whatever. And then I would go to Mogadishu or or. Uh, Freetown, and I would be the only international reporter. Um, in particular, I started reporting on on the HIV crisis in Africa, and the impact of that versus the impact of, say, the war in Iraq. You know, not to minimize what happened in Iraq because it was it was appalling, but. Um, you know, when I moved to Africa in 2003, there were 28 million people living with HIV. And so just the magnitude of that as a as an issue just struck me as so much more important. And so I said to the Globe, I'm going to quit. I'm going to move to Africa and, and report on this full time and, and I'll freelance. And they were like, oh, kind of grudgingly, okay, fine, you can go to Africa, but you know, You'll see in six months that nobody cares about this story, and then you'll come home. And I wound up being there for six years, and I've been overseas ever since. One case that was spotlighted heavily this past year was a Khashoggi case, which we also asked our guests about. The Khashoggi case has received a lot of media attention on the fear of reprisal. You know, you've been a journalist for a long time. What does that mean, the fear of reprisal? What does that mean to you or just to a journalist in the region or even to a journalist in the world today? So you see, you know, Khashoggi case is not just a reprisal um, uh, in a normal sense. This is just outright murder, cold-blooded murder by a regime that's uh, known to have been doing these things. So it's really a case uh, all by itself uh, out in the left field. And the Saudis are absolute murderers, and that's what they've done. Um, Only Mr. Trump says it's not known who did it. I mean... Uh, CIA has come to a certain conclusions and so on. Um, and this act is an extreme act by a regime that does not tolerate any dissent. There are million, millions of cases like that across, across the world. But you get murdered in Mexico, for example. Uh, you get murdered um, in, or, or you, you are made to disappear in other Latin American countries. Or you get jailed in China and so on. So there's varying degrees of oppression, repression. What people need to remember is the following. I used to be active in Penn International, which is the free speech writers group. And we, one thing we normally say is that it's not a surprise that most autocrats and dictators and monarchs and so on, they jail writers and journalists far more than they jail other people. Because what is it, why are they so afraid? I mean, writers don't have tanks. They don't have airplanes mm-hmm. and jets and so on. So the power of the world uh, is so strong um, that journalists are disproportionately jailed and tortured and sometimes killed. Zalalam also added more on the fear of reprisal. 
whether you are exiled or you are still living in, in your own country, I mean, it's still, uh, especially when you live in authoritarian countries, it's a daily experience. Uh, I mean, the, uh, when, uh, for instance, in Ethiopia, I mean, the states, uh, the one party controls every every government posts, every administrative structures, oh. so that, I mean, they can do whatever they want. They can repress in any way they uh, I mean they wish to do uh, so they may uh, uh, come through your families uh, to treat you directly yeah. I mean they they may do whatever they want as well for exiled journalists I mean uh, there are stories of Ethiopian journalists and uh, other dissidents kidnapped from Nairobi uh, while they were in exile by the Ethiopian intelligence service in collaboration with other uh, intelligence communities in the eastern part of Africa, as well, those journalists and uh, uh, dissidents uh, and commentators living in the West are also targeted by these new technologies like hacking, uh, mm. hacking their computers using these very developed, expensive Western companies manufactured softwares. Mm. So yeah, there are many stories in the past few years. So. I mean, reprisal is just an everyday experience for uh, any journalists as well, uh, dissidents, whether you are living there in Ethiopia or exiled for many reasons. I think the Kasoge case uh, is just a very, uh, the ultimate expression of what uh, reprisal means. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, in, it's happening everywhere in every aspect of life for many journalists in Africa. From an alternative perspective, Stephanie talked about how being backed by a media institution makes a significant difference. You know, it's just, it's really, really different to be um, a staff reporter with the resources and the authority of an institution behind you. And so I'm really fortunate um, because of that. And I also try, I'm aware of that privilege and the responsibility that comes with it. And so I try to do you know, for example, I was in Zimbabwe in 2008 covering the election, and I, <laughs> we never really figured out why, um, but the Globe and Mail had been accredited, when, and, this, and so had the CBC, when almost, well, for, no, no other media organizations had been accredited. And so everybody else who was there trying to cover this election, which Mugabe lost, we were able to show definitively that he lost it and he stole it. Um, everybody else who was there was in hiding, pretending to be a bird watcher or what have you. And in fact, a number of different foreign reporters um, were caught and jailed in the course of that election. Um, and so uh, Adrian Arsino, who was there for the CBC and I, uh, stood up at every press conference and asked the questions and uh, were provocative and did the things that other people couldn't do, I think because we felt really strongly that we were in a position to do it that other people weren't, right? So when you have an institution behind you, um, you know, whether that's, I mean, obviously that's a slightly different case because there were reporters there for the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Times of London who were having to hide. But um I try to do it when I know I am safer doing it than freelancers are going to be, right? They don't have someone who's going to fly them out tonight if they get in trouble or get a lawyer or, you know, be able to get them out of jail tomorrow if it goes wrong. Um, I, I mean, I've certainly covered things that have won me the displeasure of authorities, um, and I've been bounced out of a couple of countries. It's, it doesn't tend to be 
sort of that dramatic. So um, my reporting on caste issues in India made the government quite angry, but that took the form of them calling me in for cups of tea and dropping kind of elaborate hints that they wouldn't renew my visa. And that's happened to me in Pakistan as well. So um, it's never you know, they've, they didn't actually throw me out, but they just kept threatening me with the fact that I wouldn't get back. But I mean, I think that's just a sign that you're, that you're doing your job properly. And then the, I don't really worry about fear of reprisal. The dangerous reporting that I do, I worry more about getting killed. I mean, killed or kidnapped, but for reasons that have nothing to do with my being a reporter. I'm, I'm not usually, if I'm worried about my physical safety, it tends to be because I'm in a violent place where um, I will either, you know, be caught in crossfire or, you know, I just did some reporting out of an area that's narco-controlled in Mexico. But if I got killed or kidnapped there, that would just be because I was a convenient target and not because I'm a reporter. So it's kind of different. We then asked our guests, what external barriers exist for good international journalism and how can journalists contribute to mitigating challenges? One is the biggest threat is really not, as we think, from dictators and so on, the biggest threat to free speech and free press is that the business model of journalism is broken in the West. What is the hallmark of Western democracies? You know, free speech, mm -hmm. um, the right to free assembly, mm -hmm. First Amendment of the American Constitution, and most constitutions in the Western world uh, really are based on free speech. Free speech is a one of the foundational values of democracy. But if the institution um, and, 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 and the medium through which free speech is most operated on is totally under threat, it's collapsing or has collapsed. So mainstream media has more or less collapsed. Um, and newspapers are closing all over the world, and especially even in Canada, for example. We say something like uh, 55 newsrooms have been closed. We call them news deserts. They're news deserts because the local newspapers and so on cannot sustain anymore the newspaper. Why? Because the advertising is gone. Advertising has gravitated to the internet in various forms. And what digital advertising there is, 75 to 80% is now being hoovered up, sucked up by Facebook and other internet giants and so on. So the biggest threat to journalism is really not from the oppressors. Of course, oppressors are always there and so on, and that's a big threat. But the bigger threat really in the Western world is the collapse of the business model of the media and therefore media are collapsing. Mm -hmm. There are no jobs. So the you need a successful business as an, as an institution because they don't feel pressured by other people. If you are financially independent, you can practice free speech. Stephanie had quite a bit more to say about external barriers as well. I mean, I think the external barrier now is just money. Media organizations do not, you know, most media organizations do not have a viable business model. The benevolent billionaire is the only working business model that, that certainly newspapers have found up until now. Um, and so you can't do it. We There aren't enough people. There aren't people on the stories. The people can't afford to go to the stories. Um, and... and 
really important things don't get covered. The, there will be a verdict in the Berta Carceres trial in Honduras today, this amazing environmental defender who was assassinated. And fairly clearly, her killing was ordered by senior people in the Honduran government and military who have U.S. backing. It, you know, you want to know why there are 7,000 Hondurans walking across Mexico trying to get out, you know, trying to get somewhere safe. This trial is a crystallization of that. There is one international reporter and a bunch of very hardworking Hondurans, um, one international reporter at that trial um, who's been covering it and who's there for the verdict today. So, I mean, the, nobody else can, you know, freelancers can't afford to go and, and, and keep themselves alive in Honduras for the length of that trial. Um, I'm, a, I, you know, the Globe has a Latin America bureau, which puts them 100% ahead of any other Canadian media organization, but I am a bureau of one. There's a, an amazing, amazing investigation that just came out from a consortium of Mexican journalists on uh, on the disappeared and mass graves around the country. Yeah. They worked on it for, for more than six months. Um, the, the, you know, that was philanthropically funded and uh, was not done by any kind of existing media, Mexican media organization. I think partly because there was hesitation from some around reprisals about looking into it, but also because nobody has the resources to put 10 journalists and a bunch of, you know, people to scrape data and build graphics and all those things on an investigation for six months. And so, you know, again, we're relying on the benevolent billionaire in some form or another. And that's, that's terrifying. We discussed the business model, but another challenge is technology. Technology can be liberating, but it can also be constraining. Let's listen to Zalalem on his experience with how the Ethiopian government tried to suppress his free speech through technology and how Zalalem was resilient. If you are a blogger in the developing world, I mean, uh, from access to internet mm. uh, to uh, internet surveillance, uh, there are there are uh, major challenges. I mean, uh, you feel. I mean, the, uh, for instance, in Ethiopia, we don't we we only have one state telecom service provider, okay. so they can control whatever website they want. So our blog was just. I mean, blocked for many times. My personal blog was just make made accessible in, in, inaccessible in Ethiopia for many times, so oh. people can just surf and check it. I may use other extra, I mean, other uh, readback uh, tools, but for many uh, Ethiopians, that's very uh, challenging. So, uh, for especially for online bloggers and for online writers, as I said, from access to internet to surveillance, there are uh, major and big challenges. Spaces online are important to guarantee free speech, but what if those spaces aren't used effectively? What if they are void of dissent and are silent? Even when we say there is freedom, there is no freedom sometimes. And what okay. I mean by that is the following. Uh, Post 9-11, uh, America sort of unleashed this war in Afghanistan, for example. And there was a raw, raw patriotism in the United States. How many voices does one remember or recall opposed the war on Afghanistan? So does that mean that everyone in America agreed that we should really have a war on Afghanistan? Okay, maybe they did. But why did we not hear any dissenting voices? Because we are immigrant countries, especially Canada, United States. The newer immigrants generally have a different view of the world than the established population. So. Afghan Canadians and Afghan Americans would have a different view of America's war in Afghanistan 
in the name of fighting terrorism and Osama bin Laden and Taliban and so on, than the view heard from Washington. I always tell the story of Mr. Krechian during the lead up to the Iraq war. On a Saturday, I got a phone call at home. Uh, please be on standby. The Prime Minister wants to speak to you. So we said, fine, okay. Prime Minister of the day wants to speak to you. You speak to them. That happens because you're editorial page editor. They generally okay. talk. So he said, oh, this is Jean Chrétien here. I'm going to Washington on Monday to talk to Mr. Bush. What do you think of this Iraq war? So I said, sir, far be it from me to tell the Prime Minister of the day what you should be telling Mr. Bush, but I'm hearing great opposition to this war. Yes, that's what I'm hearing. And then he added one line, which was very, very important. I especially hear that from the immigrants. You see, Mr. Krechan, very shrewd politician, he said, I'm hearing that more from the immigrants. So immigrants have a different view of the world than those who sort of grow up here, which is, a, and because we live in an enriched society, people have different views, they bring right. different international perspectives, but those views are not normally reflected in the mainstream media. So what elements of, of this are we not paying attention to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was trying to say that, I mean, uh, I think the problem is that Currently, I mean, yeah, I, I know it's it's the public's uh, need, uh, but journalists mainly focused on what the public wants to consume in daily uh, basis. I mean, just okay. like this breaking of this and that's uh, frivolous stories, all them uh, big stories maybe. But at the same time, there, I mean, if journalists uh, give a focus to uh, some other stories, like for me or disasters in a very far land, uh, I mean, less reported or no report at all. In many cases, I think uh, that will help. Uh, I came from Africa and right. I feel that, yeah, Africa needs a better representation in this media sphere. Uh, okay. I, believe, uh, I mean, there are a lot of good stories as well as bad stories. So, yeah, it needs a fair representation. Yeah, I, I mean, the problem is not only in the West, uh, actually, yeah. African media is still very nonsense and mm. it's very partisan in many cases, in many countries, and very weak for many reasons. There are some other uh, rising medias like uh, Al Jazeera in the Arabia. Mm. Uh, the BBC is also good. I'm especially uh, giving focus to African topics. Mm. But many of uh, these media outlets in the Americas are not that much interested in that part of the world. And I feel that, yeah, it's the audience, but I wish uh, the media personalities focused on, uh, focused beyond what the public wants for its daily consumption. And here is what Haroon had to say. We don't question the received wisdom enough. That's the main thing. I mean, in the United States, for example, not just about international issues, about the issues facing Americans, we have had a very limited discussion about globalization. We have a very limited discussion about the effect of globalization on uh, rural areas, on the working class people. You get very little discussion on why the hell that no banker went to jail after 2008 and it's the ordinary people that got uh, clobbered. It's now beginning to be asked. But 2008 was 11 years ago, no? Hmm. Right? Yeah. Why didn't... We never got this 
a wide-ranging discussion. What the hell is wrong with neoliberalism? Why the hell, what the hell is wrong with globalization? Why are we towing the line to the big banks? Why are we uh, feeling the need that we can just sit by and do nothing while our our Canadian American citizens lose jobs and um, and go into depression? And we have the why do we not have a good until now a great discussion on the opioid crisis? Uh, more Americans die, far more Americans die of opioid than ever did during, from the war on uh, from, <laughs> the, from the war on terror wow. or from the terrorists, right? Uh, but it's only now we are beginning to sort of raise muted voices. Oh, the, maybe the pharmaceutical companies played a part. Maybe the doctors played a part. Maybe the local pharmacy played a part. Why is journalism in the land of the free uh, has been absent? So these impediments of the of the of of not having the courage or not having the resources or not having the, even the inclination to question is 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 in fact a greater danger to me in democracies stephanie took this conversation to a different place and spoke about the inadequate reporting on climate issues i think the thing that we haven't figured out is how and and it's gotten maybe better in the last year or two but that's um it's how to do good reporting on climate climate issues and the Mm -hmm. impacts of climate um i spent five years in brazil and Really, in those five years, I managed to produce one serious piece of work about um, deforestation and the Amazon forest and what that means kind of for humanity, Um, partly because through all of that time, I struggled with how to tell this big story that you know nobody wants to hear about. Right. I mean, it was it was expensive to do. It was complicated. It took months. But um, but also, how do I tell this story? Absolutely. And this is kind of an obvious follow-up, but with the change of regime in Brazil, I mean, that will likely become even more difficult, (laughs) I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean... Brazil is just such a wild card, right? Like, I, what, what is Bolsonaro going to do? Is he going to do? Uh, I have no trouble believing he will be the absolute incarnation of all the worst possible scenarios we can imagine, or or worse even than anything we can imagine right now. Uh, or maybe Brazil's institutions will kick in and it won't be that bad. I mean, either way, I think you can expect to see the pace of deforestation accelerate incredibly quickly. Yeah. I think the thing that we don't, one of the things that we don't know about Brazil um, is what's going to happen to the media. I think that, that, you know, Bolsonaro could come under incredible scrutiny and that could be, um, that, you know, could exert some sort of check on, on what he does. He's already targeted media institutions really aggressively in a really damaging way. Um, rather like Trump, he's chosen this sycophantic um, evangelical television network as the only institution he'll talk to that suddenly has made it incredibly influential when nakedly they challenge nothing that he says and do no reporting. Um, what, you know, will Brazil's media institutions be able to step up and, and you know, provide real scrutiny? of what he's doing, they're incredibly weak. They, In the course of the time that I lived there, I watched the amount of reporting done by independent Brazilian journalistic institutions 
diminished by about 40%. They closed their bureaus, they, you know, their bureaus within the country, they laid off huge amounts of their staff, the papers shrank and shrank and shrank, the magazines shrank or failed. Um, like everywhere else, they're really struggling with a business model and as an institution. So at the very moment that you have this leader who's very, I would say, very dangerous for Brazil, but also for the rest of humanity, um, you have much weaker institutions in Brazil and institutions that he's actively trying to undermine, media institutions, well, as well as other institutions. But he's He's actively trying to undermine the media. So who is there to provide scrutiny on what he does? I mean, it's um, it's very troubling. Do you see a similar, uh, I guess, risk um, with the Mexico elections that are coming up? Oh, yeah. So Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think we really don't know. If you had asked me a couple of months ago, I would have said that there remains the possibility that this is going to be a really positive change for Mexico. Um, Lopez Obrador only becomes president on uh, in two days from now, but he has effectively been the president for the last two months. Mm -hmm. um, he apparently didn't get the memo about the fact that he only gets sworn in on the 1st of December. So he's done all of these momentous things in the past couple of months. Most of them have been very hard to fathom uh, and very disappointing for a lot of his supporters. Uh, he's had a terrible impact on the economy. He hasn't even taken office yet. And he has so far shown himself to be really cavalier about institutions and the independence of, you know, autonomous uh, agencies in within government. And so that's really troubling. And I think has made a lot of people who were quite who were cautiously optimistic, much less optimistic. We've really transitioned from a sense of optimism here to a sense of anxiety. Mm. Um, there is, you know, again, he's not the president yet. So there is the possibility that things turn around and, uh, and it all goes well. The Mexican media is not maybe as robust as one would hope. And uh, obviously, you know, this country has one of the highest rates of the killing of journalists in the world, which certainly serves to dampen the amount of reporting people, investigations people want to do on the ties between narcos and government. Um, it's not at all clear, you know, how much... Lopez Obrador has the ability, much like Bolsonaro does, to undermine those institutions if he chooses to. He hasn't really yet, but if he chooses to attack them, to to put a lot of obstacles in their way, and to pull the government advertising on which they are hugely dependent at this moment for their like only remaining budget, um, he could also he could certainly significantly weaken those institutions. So there would be, you know, you potentially rather like Brazil have a confluence of a leader who's trampling over top of institutions and a, a very diminished media that are not capable of, um, you know, of providing the kind of scrutiny you would hope. All of these international journalists have highlighted some important contemporary issues, which just like their work is always subject to change. They invite us to continue to think critically about the pivotal roles they play in our consumption and education of global issues. They are transnational actors who are vulnerable yet they have the conviction to voice local and regional concerns globally. They should have greater legal protections for what they do in the pursuit of global justice. So, where are these journalists today? They are still working, still reporting, still being resilient. As Haroon said, they show the real power of the word. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Law Among Peoples, and engaging in the salient issue. Thank you to our guests, Stephanie Nolan, Haroon Siddiqui, and Zalalem Kibrit, as well as our Interhentis team, who helped bring this project together. Alyssa McLeod, Eleanor Dennis, Irfan Tahiri, 
and Shake Sarkanian. Special thanks to Abigail Murta for her editorial and production support. To check out our current issue, browse the archives, or contribute to the conversation, please visit our website at www.interhentes.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com. Keep the dialogue going, and we'll catch you next time on Law Among Peoples. (laughs) 